This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Approximately 15% of all students are identified as in need of special education across the United States. Back in 1974, when the Individual Disabilities in Education Act was originally passed under another title, it was thought that about 4% of students needed special education services. But over the years, it's gone up, and uh, many new, uh, less well-defined categories of disabilities, such as dyslexia, learning disabilities, emotional and behavioral disabilities, and others were added to the older, well-defined categories, blind, deaf, multiply handicapped, and profound mental retardation that were part of the original thinking. As definition of need changed, questions arose as to whether schools were identifying too few or too many students in need of special education. On the one side, there were those who said needy students were not being given the required services. And on the other side, there were those who said schools were classifying children as in need of special education in order to get more money from the federal and state government. Racial and ethnic issues have intruded on this debate. Some claim that teachers and administrators are denying minority children the services they need, while others claim exactly the opposite, that they're being over-identified and placed in special education programs when they don't need to be. So now we have a new study by a group of economists at several universities and they, th their analysis hasn't resolved the debate, but it certainly has put new light on it from a completely different direction. The paper is entitled, School Segregation and Racial Gaps in Special Education Identification. It can be found on the prestigious website of the National Bureau for Economic Research. The authors are Todd Elder, David Viglio, Scott Imberman, and Claudia Persico. I'm pleased to have with me today uh, Scott Imberman, uh, from Michigan State University on the Education Exchange. Scott, welcome to the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, Paul. Well, Scott, let's start with your principal finding. What did your group find? Um, so what we found was that uh, primarily when you look overall in our data uh, from the state of Florida, uh, at uh, disproportionality by race and special education identification. There is a bit of uh, under-identification uh, for minority students, particularly black students. But what was particularly different is that if you take into account the racial composition of the school, essentially how, in, in, essentially how segregated the school is, we saw a very different pattern. It, in schools that were mostly white, uh, minority students, and this this was generally much more substantial for black students than for Hispanic students, but the same pattern emerged. Minority students tended to be pretty substantially over-identified, more likely to be in special ed than what a similar uh, white student would be. But in mostly minority schools, uh, they were substantially under-identified, so considerably less likely to be identified with special ed than a similar white student. So would be. you're more like if you're a black student with the same in the same situation as best you can estimate it, you're much more likely to be placed in a special education program if you are located in a school that's nearly all black than if you're in a school that's nearly all white. Well, actually, it was the opposite. You're more likely to be placed in a special education program if you're in a school that's all white than necessarily if you're in a school that's all black. My, my mistake. Yeah, my mistake. Yes. I got it backwards. Yes. You, you, it, then that, I think I got it backwards because it's just sort of surprising. 
you're more likely to be placed in special education if you're in a school that is mostly white. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Now, well, first, first of all, can we be sure of this finding? How sure are you of this finding? And you were telling me some of the procedures you followed that got right. you to this, this finding. So a thing that kind of distinguishes this, is, uh, this finding is that um, you know, a lot of prior work really is kind of limited in what they account for. So you know, we, can't, you know, we can't account for everything. Nobody, you know, it's, it, you, nobody really ever can. But we do have access to these student records, which we are able to combine with um, data from birth records to get a basically kind of like a baseline of student health from when they're uh, born and some baseline uh, economic characteristics of the parents. And so we're able to account for a lot of these health measures and economic measures, which um, you know, really uh, has been very difficult to account for before. Uh, so that helps us in kind of like, I guess you could say in terms of like how confident we are in the, in the results. Um, you know, I, I don't want to put like a certainty kind of measure on it. I guess I wouldn't describe it that way. But we think that our results that in the sense of, yes, if you take a, uh, a black student and compare them to an observably similar white student, this is essentially uh, a pretty good estimate of what happens. And since we have a lot of data here, we have basically the entire uh, set of stu all, all native-born uh, native students in the state of Florida for over a decade. Um, we have a lot of data, and so we can get very accurate measures. So you have all this uh, medical information that you've linked to your school information, so you have much better... Uh, way of estimating uh, as to whether a child is likely to be in need of uh, special education. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And, and so, now, uh, what is it that's happening in these all-black schools? Are the administrators sort of saying, we don't think very many of our kids are in need of special education, and so we're not going to put them in a special education program. Is that what's going on? So that's, you know, that's beyond what we can really see, right? Uh, we don't really know. And I think the more qualitative literature on this is, you know, pretty, pretty thin. We don't really know that much about what's going on inside, say, inside the black box. We, are, we do think, though, that one of the more likely explanations for what we see is that there's potentially a tendency to be able to, in some sense, observe a student who looks different. Uh, you're able to either uh, notice things about them that might trigger uh, more, particularly if it's a minority student, it seems. Uh, you might notice things about them that would tend to be more likely to trigger the identification process. Uh, so, for example, you know, if, if a teacher sees a black student in a mostly white school, uh, he or she may be more likely to pay more attention to that student, either because they're different, uh, they, you know, because they look different, or uh, it could also be uh, an innate discrimination, or it could also be uh, just that the student actually is presenting those uh, learning, uh, learning disabilities and potentially behavioral disabilities, but 
in the mostly black schools, you may have a lot of students who are like that. And so you, it's harder to kind of separate out who really needs the help versus those who don't. And sometimes, uh, you know, if you're just, it, it's, it's what could be going on is a lot of comparisons to your reference group that the, the schools observe. Well, sometimes it's a pretty tricky thing because some of these categories that are called uh, disability categories nowadays um, yeah, can be very difficult to distinguish from uh, just the fact that the student has not had a good education in the previous years that they've been in school. Or, you know, it may, do, are they really disabled or is it just that they need to have a good teacher? Right. And... And also, I mean, a lot of what kind of determines uh, a lot of learning disabilities happens to be whether or not the student is uh, falling behind academically. And, that, and so a lot of these could be a function of your uh, initial school environment. Um, one interesting thing to note is that we looked at some of these categories specifically, and even though they're a very small portion of the sample, it's worth noting that we don't see the same pattern, say, for example, with students with autism or students with physical disabilities. So it is somewhat suggestive that these more, one could call these more malleable disabilities that are driving what we see. Yes, well, it is very true that there's a, a big difference between, I mean, I have a, a disabled child, a, a son who's now an adult, but I have a... Uh, a he was he was autistic, and he, there was no way you could fail to notice David, whatever his skin color. And uh, but that was not the you know that's not the case with something like a learning disability, or or maybe dyslexia. That may not be so easy to spot. Yeah, and, and it is possible that particularly in these more heavily minority schools, that a lot of students, uh, kids who may need the services, are getting lost. In the crowd, at the same time, there may be excessive use of these of special education in some of these less minority schools. I would caution, though, that when looking at our paper, one of the fundamental things is even though we do are able, better able to account for kind of these underlying health measures, measures, what you know about this child at birth is still very far from knowing their full health history. And essentially, all we can do is kind of compare to say. say what would happen to the student if they were a white student in a similar situation? And as opposed to saying, you know, what is the actual need of the student? And we still don't have very good evidence in some sense on, you know, to what extent special education itself is serving the students who, in, uh, the students' needs. Like, is special education itself uh, effective and for whom? Uh, and, and we don't know much about that. We don't really know all that much about that, except in very kind of some very small scale studies. Now, one of the things that other studies are showing is that if you, uh, if a, a student moves from a traditional public school to a charter school, they're more likely to not be classified as in need of special education. And then, if they move back from the charter school, they're more likely to be classified as in need. And that's in Florida. It's from the same data set that you're looking at or overlaps mm -hmm. the data set you're looking at. And so the, so the question I have is, you know, but who's right here? Is it the charter schools or is it the public schools? Uh, who's, who's doing the right classification? Uh, I would, and my answer would be, I don't think we know. Uh, it's really hard to tell. And until we see some evidence on, you know, who's doing better for these students, 
then we might not be able, then it might be hard to tell. I do know of one paper uh, in uh, Massachusetts, not in Florida, that actually looked at the impact of uh, charter schools on special education students and did seem to find uh, some pretty large positive impacts on those students. Now, that said, charter schools in Massachusetts and generally have been you know, creating some large positive uh, achievement impacts. So, you know, it's not exactly clear how much of that is, like, doing better on the special ed margin versus how much of that is doing better on education margin more generally. Right. So the confusion out there is still there. We don't really know, and I'm sure this is not a universal. It's got to be in some places it's one thing, in other places it's another thing. That uh, some places they are probably over-identifying kids and putting into uh, them into special programs, and it's really not necessary. Uh, and in other places, it's the other way around. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I agree with that, and I think our research kind of highlights this because there is uh, there is a tendency to kind of paint with a broad brush and say, well, it's it's either either there's over identification or there's under identification. And I think what our study really shows is that it's a much more complicated picture. And I, I'm not, we're not even necessarily saying that, you know, the racial composition of the school is, is the driving force, um, right? There's, there are other things that could be correlated with it that we, that we might have missed. So we did try to account for, we did do some analyses to look at the role that economic status of the school plays, and it seems that the racial composition matters more. But there's a whole lot of other factors that could play. And I think the bottom line is that our notions about, you know, is disproportionality, is, is it better to be, uh, is exact uh, proportionality, like avoiding under-identification, avoiding over-identification, a good thing? It's not actually obvious, uh, particularly if you start thinking about, well, once you account for a background of some students, what might be exact identification in the, in the raw data, which is essentially to, you know, with some wiggle room, with, you know, some error, margin for error there is essentially what IDEA requires, the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act, um, may not be the best thing uh, to, try, to be striving for. So now we've been talking a lot about African-American students, uh, and, and you say the same is true for Hispanic students, but not quite, right? It's not as pronounced. Right, yeah. The pattern, we see, we see a similar pattern, but it's not as pronounced for Hispanic students. And for white students, you don't see much of this at all. It's pretty much the the, the we, issue is across the board. Actually, if there is an issue, I'm sorry. Yeah, yep. Go we ahead. We actually do see a, a little bit of evidence of uh, increasing a, a little bit of evidence of over slight over identification for white students in mostly minority schools. So it's a lot smaller than what we see for black and Hispanic students, but there is a bit of evidence that we find that that's there as well. And you're saying it's not because the uh, all-black school or predominantly black school has fewer resources or less money. You don't think that's the driving explanation why they would not be putting kids in a special education program? Yeah, we don't think that's what's mostly what's at play here. There's a couple things that we did. First of all, we tried to look at gifted and talented programs as, uh, as kind of like a uh, in some sense, a counterexample, because one would expect that if it's resources that are driving it, then if you have less special education, you may also have less gifted and talented services. But we actually see the opposite pattern there. And so, um, when you say the opposite pattern, what do you see for for gifted uh, meaning, and talented? I'm sorry, meaning that in the minority schools, 
uh, in the uh, mostly minority schools, minority students tend to be more likely to be in gifted and talented programs than observably similar white students. If so they're it's in like a, the opposite of what we see with special ed. If, if, if they're in an all-black school, a minority student is more likely to get in gifted talent than a, than a comparable white student. But if they're in a predominantly white school, the opposite would be the case. Is that? Yeah, it's actually roughly even in a predominantly white school. So why would why do you think you would get some differences there? Is it is it that people and teachers in an all black school are are trying to identify students who who look like they might have a future and are make, making sure they get into a program if they're a minority student? Well, we didn't really explore that detail in, in, in that, I mean, that much in depth, and that might be something we kind of look into more detail into the, in the future. For now, we kind of want to just see whether or not we it's on like a related in the uh, another program that requires extra resources whether whether we see the same patterns what we see for special education. So I wouldn't want to speculate as to why that 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 occurs there. And one of the things you don't have is information on the ethnic background of the teacher. No, unfortunately we don't have that information. So we sort of think that you're more likely to have a minority teacher if you're in a predominantly minority school, but we aren't sure of that. Is that? Yeah, but if uh, Florida, from what we could find, we weren't able to find any uh, publica- publication from Florida of that data on t- an ethnic breakdown of teachers, and so we weren't able to ascertain whether or not that's true in our case. So where are you taking the study next? What's your, your next step in this research? Well, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, I guess uh, I said before that we leave the gifts up for future research, but I'm not so sure how well we can because, uh, unfortunately, we're we're losing our data access uh, for the Florida data, and uh, and so, you know, we might consider trying to look at some other things in some other states, but for now, um, you know, there, there aren't any immediate plans to go beyond what we're do what we're doing right now. Well, is there any reason to think that these uh, findings can be generalized to to other states, or is this a particular Florida phenomenon? No, I think it's likely that this is something that you would see in other states as well. Uh, And I certainly hope that people are are able to and willing to kind of try to replicate what we did in some other states. Um, You know, Florida is, in some senses, both unique and not. Um, It's very diverse, and it's... You know, it's a, it is kind of one of those states that one feels is like maybe a bit of a microcosm of America. But, you know, it's also much more heavily Hispanic than other states. And so, you know, would we see kind of a similar thing, say, for example, in Michigan, where, you know, the main differences between black students and, and white students, and there are very few Hispanic students. I think that would be an interesting thing uh, to try to see in the future. Um, but but I, I'd, I'd be surprised if this this pattern is specifically unique to Florida. I, I would think it, there are other places where it'd be, it would uh, show up as well. But Florida does have this wonderful database, and, and, and at, at least in the past, you've been able to link the Florida database to other Florida records. So it's, that's another way in which it's going to be hard to do this in other places, I would imagine. Yeah, and that's a, and that's a, and that's a hard thing. And that's a real unfortunate thing about how it's getting more difficult to get ed- you know access to education data in Florida, uh, and I, I certainly hope that in the, in the near future there's uh, that uh, it becomes uh, that those restrictions that are making it more difficult for researchers to to 
learn this information there uh, will be relaxed. Well, um, thank you, Scott, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Uh, it's been a, a, a fascinating uh, discussion of your uh, really uh, important new research. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. I've been speaking with Scott Imberman, Professor of Economics and Education at Michigan State University. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern Time. Thank you for joining me.